We are on Ksubis Chaf Amaral of 28.3 in the first column in the Art Scroll Gemara. By way of introduction, uh, we will be discussing a little bit about the laws of testimony and types, forms of testimony that are acceptable. So the Gemara has the following drasha, the following um, embellishment on the Pasuk. The Torah tells us that when witnesses testify, it has to be mipihem, through their mouths. They have to testify through their mouths. What does that mean? So there is a drasha that says from their mouths, velo mipiksavam, they cannot have it in writing. So what exactly does that mean? So there are at least two explanations for that, the two explanations that have to do with our Gemara. Number one is that uh, when the method in which one testifies has to be mipihem, has to be through their mouth, it cannot be written down. There is no testimony that could be accepted when it's written down. The question is, well, that's not true. We know that a star, you could have a halachic document, that's acceptable, that's, you could give that to the court, and it's recognized in court. So how, does, how exactly does that work? So there, there are different answers uh, to that question of how exactly does that work. There's one answer is that maybe that's limited to somebody who is deaf-mute. Somebody who is deaf-mute is completely disqualified because they don't even have the ability to speak in court. If you have the ability to speak in court, so then maybe you could also write it down. Others answer that uh, there is what's referred to as da'as hamischayev, that a, a halachic uh, document only works if, not if the witness writes it down, but he was authorized to write it by somebody who is um, who is losing out, meaning let's say it's the borrower. He could authorize the witnesses to sign because he now has an obligation to pay. So when that occurs, so then it's a halakhically valid document. But the witnesses themselves cannot just write their own notes to then bring it to court as a form of testimony. Alternatively, there are those that explain that it's true. Notes you cannot bring into court, but if there's a certain seder hashtar, a specific order for the shtar, there's an order, there's a, there's, there's a specific guidelines of how you could write a document, a halakhically valid document, so then that's acceptable in court. But if you don't follow those rules, so then you cannot bring your notes to court. That won't be acceptable just as notes to bring them to court. And finally, the position of the Rambam Maimonides is that, in fact, it's true. On a biblical level, on a derisive level, we will not accept any document whatsoever. A halakh, there is no such thing as a halakhic document on a derisive level. It's only on a rabbinic level. On a rabbinic level, they accepted this concept of a shtar, of a document, but on a, which the rabbis have the right to do, especially when, with regards to monetary issues. They're in control of that, and so therefore it's acceptable. The big problem with this position of the Rambam is that we know that you could have a document for marriage and for divorce. How does that work? So it could be that what the Rambam was referred to was limited to documents which are used primarily for proof. If it's just for proof that something happened, that there was a loan, that there was a sale, so that's only on a rabbinic level. But if the document is necessary to to create the transaction, to create the change in status, so the document is used to get married, you could have a document, a marriage document used to, to get married, or a, a, a divorce document is through the divorce document, through the handing over the divorce document between the husband to the wife, that's what creates the divorce. So then that's not just a, a document which is used for proof, but that's a document we refer to as a shtar kinyan. That's what actually creates the change in status. So there the Rambam will say that works on a biblical level. When he said that it only works on a rabbinic level, it's limited to um, the cases of 
is limited to on a rabbinic level if it's just uh, if it's just for proof. Um, okay, so that is issue number one, which is the method of testimony. Could you send in testimony through writing, or does it have to only be oral? So we had different explanations there uh, uh, between the between the different rishonim. The next question is, well, what happens if a witness, after they witness something, they write it down uh, as just notes for themselves, not to bring to court, but for themselves, and then they have to testify years later. They don't remember all the facts. So then are they allowed to use their notes to remind them of the facts, to trigger some sort of memory or to remind them of the facts? Are they allowed to do that, or do they have to just remember it completely, even without having any notes? So that's that's the discussion of our Gemara. So the Gemara says as follows, Tana Rabbanan. It was taught in a Brisa. A person is allowed to write down notes about what they what they witnessed, and then they can testify orally on it. They cannot bring it, as we pointed out before. They can't bring those notes to court. That's not, that won't be acceptable. But they could testify orally uh, on it many years later. That's permissible. They could they could look at the notes and then testify in it. But we'll see that Rav Huna and Rav Yochanan have the following qualifications. Um, Rav, Huna. Rav Huna says, Rav Huna says it only works if he remembers part of the testimony on his own. If he doesn't remember any of the testimony without looking into it, so then he's not a witness. He has to remember that part of the testimony, it could be that the document will fill in some of the blanks, some of the details, specific details, but if he doesn't remember it at all, and the only way he remembers the testimony itself was just from reading his own notes, then he's no longer even classified as a witness. He's not. He's not a witness. He's not somebody who who remembers uh, experience, that experience at all. So he has to remember part of it, and then the rest of the document he could use uh, to fill in the details. Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan says, no. Rabbi Yochanan says, no. He doesn't have to remember any of it before he, um, before he sees the document. However, Rabbi Yochanan says that he does have to read the document, and through the reading of the document, it triggers memory. It can't be that even after reading the document, he doesn't remember a thing, and uh, comes to court and testifies about what he wrote in his notes. No, he has to, uh, it has to trigger his memory to, to realize and to remember that, oh yeah, that's exactly what happened. It's just there to trigger memory, and so then you can use the document. He doesn't have to remember anything before he reads it, but after he reads his own personal notes, so then if it triggers something, it triggers a memory, and then he, he really remembers it on his own, so then he is in fact, uh, could go the, to court to, to testify. So Amar Rabbi, Rabbi says, based on this, we learn from the ruling of Rabbi Yochanan, we learn from the statement of Rabbi Yochanan that uh, the document could trigger his memory, so then it's not just a document, but Hani so if you have two people who know, know about a certain testimony, but one of them forgot about it, one could, just like a document could trigger memory, one of the witnesses could also tell the other witness and say, remember we were together when something such happened, as long as it triggers the memory. He can't just... He's not allowed to just take the information and spit it back and say, I was there. No, he has to remember what happened. He has to remember the details. But the one of the witnesses could then remind the second witness of what it, of what happened. And that would be fine, as long as it triggers a memory where he then remembers it on his own. So Ibailu, the Gemara has the following question. Atzmumai. What happens if the litigant himself reminds the witness? It's not just another witness, but the litigant himself says, the, the person, the, the lender, <laughs> pulls over the witness and says, don't you remember that uh, I lent uh, so-and-so money and you were there as a witness? Is he allowed to trigger the memory or not? So, 
So Chaviva says, even the litigant himself can remind the witness. It's still good because at the end of the day, it's triggering a memory and he's testifying based on his own memory. Marbaridavashi says, not so fast. He says, no, it looks very suspicious. Very suspicious. Very unclear whether we could take, we could accept that. He says we cannot accept it. And the law, the halach is, is that we do not accept such, te- such testimony. In fact, the commentators point out it's not just for the litigant, but it could be even the litigant's spouse or kids. Um, maybe extended family would be believed, but if it's definitely if it's within the the spouse or kids, so then they would not be not be believed because it just looks too suspicious. Okay, moving on to Chafam Abiz. Twenty B, the Gemara says If, however, now who we're referring to is unclear. Either it's the witness. Rashi says it's the witness. The Rambam says it's the litigant. It's unclear we're talking about the litigant or the witness. But if one of them is a Torah scholar. So then, afilu atzmo. So then, even the litigant could tell the witness and remind the witness because the Torah scholar will have the ability to really fully understand whether it's their own memory or whether they're just being told it, and they're, they'll definitely be honest about it. And so, therefore, if it's referring to a Torah scholar, so then even if their memory is triggered by by the litigant, that that would be viewed as acceptable. And we have the following case to prove this. Rav Ashi had knowledge of a testimony that had to do with Rav Kahana. So Rav Kahana said to Rav Ashi, don't you remember what happened? Rav Kahana is the litigant, he says to Rav Ashi, he was the witness. Don't you remember that you were the, you, you were the witness to the following issue? Amrlei, lo. Rav Ashi says, no, I don't remember it. So Amrlei, v'lav, hachi v'hachi hava, didn't such, such and such happen. Ravashi says, I don't know. But in the end, in the end, Ravashi remembered himself. He says, oh yeah, I now I remember it. So he then testified on behalf of Kahana. However, he saw that Rav Kahana was, uh, was shocked. He was shocked and amazed by, by how could he testify about this. It was purely based on what I told him. I'm the litigant. So he says, Ravashi said to Rav Kahana to calm him down. He said, I'm not relying on you. I concentrated, I thought about it, and I remembered it on my own. You might have triggered the memory, but in the end of the day, I remembered it on my own. So if you're a Torah scholar, again, both the litigant and the witness in this case, they're both Torah scholars. So it's hard to know whether in the original statement, the Torah scholar has to be the witness or the litigant. This is a dispute between Rashi and the Rambam. Uh, however, if one of them Unclear which one is is a is a Torah scholar, and therefore they're able to be honest about it and differentiate between what's a memory that they're being told versus a memory that they remembered on their own. Um, and they'll be able to have to 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 do that, and so then they could testify. They would be allowed to testify. And that's what the Gemara says. The rest of the Gemara until the Mishnah, basically for the rest of this class, discusses. A totally different topic. Totally, totally different topic. Interesting topic, but a different topic. And within this topic, the reason why we're mentioning it is because within it, there's one opinion, the opinion of a mayor, who says that witnesses only remember things for 60 years. And that's really why we're bringing it up. We're basically going to ask, could witnesses only testify about an event for if, uh, up to 60 years past that event? Beyond that, they're not able to testify, at least according to a mayor, or no, they could even testify beyond that. So let's see, let's see the, uh, the Gemara. The Gemara quotes the following Mishnah. It's a non-hasam. It is taught in a Mishnah. And this has to do with 
uh, burial about uh, are we concerned that somebody's buried in a certain area? If they're buried, if if there's somebody who's buried in a certain area, so then that is a place of tuma of impurity, and therefore kohanim cannot go there. A person becomes impure if they pass by it. So let's see what the case is. If you have mounds, you have these mounds that are either near the city or near a path, and we'll see exactly what we're talking about in a minute. If it's near the city, so then whether they are new mounds or whether they're old, we are concerned that the reason why there's a mound there is because somebody was buried there, and therefore we assume that they are tame, that they are impure. Harachokos, however, it's further away from the town or the path. So then chadashos tahoros, if it's new, a new mound, so then we assume that it's pure. Nobody, if it's new, nobody is uh, coming forth telling us that somebody was buried there. Otherwise, if it's, since it's new, somebody would have known. Nobody's saying this, so therefore we assume that it is pure. But if it's old, even if it's further away from the city, if they're old, we have to be concerned that uh, somebody was buried there, and that's why they turned it into a mound, and therefore it would be viewed as impure. Now, this is a big chiddush, uh, it's a novel idea, because in general we say that in a public area, when we're in doubt with regards to the laws of purity and impurity, we are more lenient in a public area. So why are they strict here? In fact, we'll see that even in Israel, we'll, we should be more lenient. So the Gemara will, will discuss this. But let's see. Ezui Krova, what does it mean near the city? Chamishim Amah. 50 Amos. If it's 50 Amos, a certain measurement, close to the city, that's called close to the city. Vezahi Yishana, what does it mean old? So here comes Rav Meir, and this is why we're mentioning all of this. We'll get back to this towards the end. Shishim Shana Divir Meir. Meir says... 60 years. And the Gemara will explain, because up to 60 years, the witnesses will remember uh, this uh, this mound. Rabbi Huda argues. That's the position of Rabbi Meir. What does it mean, close to the city or close to the path? It's not about it being uh, within 50 Amos or further away from 50 Amos. If it's the closest mound, then we'll assume that somebody buried there. But if it's further away, so then why would they go to the further mound that let them just go to the closer one? They wouldn't want to travel. Why travel for further for no reason? So we only assume that the people are buried in the closer mount. And that's what close means. As long Whichever one is the closest one to the city or to the path. What does it mean that it's an old mound? It just means that nobody remembers the origin of it. He doesn't give a specific amount of time. He doesn't say 60 years like Rav Meir. It's just whenever people don't remember when it was first put up, when this mound was first created. Uh, so then that's old. But if people remember, so then that's new. So the Gemara wants to know, my ear, my derech. What are we talking about? The town and a path. What exactly are we talking about? If we're talking about an actual town, any town or any path, so then why would we? If we're in doubt, we don't know whether it's pure or impure. Whether you don't know if somebody's buried there or not, why would we assume that somebody was buried there? Why would we assume uh, that there is tuma that there there is impurity there? We know that Rish Lakish says that um, whenever we're in Israel and we're in doubt, so we want to make Israel tahor. We want people to travel the land of Israel. And when there's a question of when it's a questionable situation, we'll assume that it's they're pure, that that area is pure. Why would we assume that it's impure? What what's the case here? So Amr Abzir Abzir says it's limited to the following: Ir ir asmuchel beisakvars. When we're talking about a city, it means a city which is close to a cemetery. Derech derech beisakvars. And we're talking about a path. Talking about the path leading up to the graveyard, to the cemetery. 
Uh, so now there's a real concern for Tumah because we're, ne- we're the city next to the cemetery or we're by the pathway towards the cemetery. So that's a real concern. So Bishlam, Derech Basic Varus, I can understand, says the Gemara, the pathway to the cemetery. So then the Zimdin Dimisrami Ben Ashmashos, who make recover Basel, Eliiras Muchal, the Basic Varus, Kulhi, the Basic Varus, Ozli. I understand the path. It makes sense. There could be situations where there's a mound on the path towards the cemetery. Why? Because let's say it was right before Shabbos. They thought they would be able to bury in the cemetery, but Shabbos is getting closer and closer. Uh, they don't want to violate Shabbos, so they bury by the path. Because they have to. Time is running out. So they bury by the path. Uh, and so therefore they create this mound. So, so you could come up with a situation why they, why they would bury on the path. But if it's the city, who cares about the city? If it's the city, everyone, we know, everyone goes to the cemetery. So why would we assume that in the city that somebody was buried there if there's a mound there? So the answer is, Amar Rabbi Hanin, Rabbi Hanin says, the reason is, is because there are women who have a miscarriage and they bury their fetus there. And that's the rule, in fact, when there's a miscarriage. So then you're supposed to bury the fetus. And they bury the fetus there and they don't go to the actual cemetery, perhaps because they're embarrassed um, and they don't want to go so far. It's, therefore, they'll bury within the city. Alternatively, the cases where there are people who lost a limb uh, their limb was amputated, their arm was amputated, they would also bury the arm in the city. They wouldn't go all the way to the cemetery, but they would go to the city, which also is a fascinating discussion. If there's a limb which, uh, God forbid, fell off, if it was amputated, so then does it require burial? We say that you do have to bury it. It's unclear if the reason is because there's an obligation to bury it, just like you have an obligation to bury anybody. You also have to have an obligation to bury all limbs, or maybe it's just to get out of the concern of impurity, because a Kohen cannot come in contact even of of a dead limb, and not just a full dead body, but any dead limb. So in the end of the day, you do have to bury, um, you do have to bury uh, every limb, but the question is, is it because it has its own obligation, or is it just uh, preventive? It's to make sure that the Kohen doesn't come into contact with it. Either way, you have a situation where both you'll bury on the pathway, because it's getting close to Shabbos, Therefore, you have to bury right away, or it's in the city closest to the cemetery. They will. There's concern that they will bury a fetus there or an amputated arm, an amputated limb in that area, and not in the actual cemetery. In fact, just uh, to point out, when it comes to a fetus, if it's a, we give a name. There's a concept of giving a name, um, and also to do a bris mila, to do a circumcision. Even if they died as, as a fetus, they, there's a concept of doing a circumcision before the burial. Anyways, the Gemara continues, Up to 50 amos from the town limits, a woman would go by herself and bury her fetus in a mound. Right? But if the mound is further than 50 amos, so basically this is outside the city, up to 50 amos she'll go by herself and bury in a mound. If it's beyond 50 amos, She'll take somebody, her husband, let's say, with her to the graveyard. But in the end of the day, we see that they will bury the fetus, or let's say the, the amputated arm, um, up to fifty amos away. That they'll do on their own. And so, therefore, there's a concern that if it's uh, this, if it's fifty amos within the city limits, so then if there's a mound there, we're concerned that somebody actually buried there. Okay. Why are we bringing all this in? Amr of Chista, Shema Minami Rameir, we prove from Rameir, Haisadusa Ajisin Shana Midchar, Tfeilo Midchar. It seems to be that 
from a halachic perspective, a person can only testify about something that happened within the last 60 years. That's why he says, what is old? It means beyond 60 years, because beyond 60 years, a person can remember. According to Rabbi Huda, you can testify as long as you can remember, even beyond 60 years. But according to Mayer, it sounds like the limit is 60 years. The Gemara says, no. Velohi. Over there, it's talking about testifying about something they saw, and at the time that they saw it, uh, they didn't uh, realize that it's something that they were supposed to testify about. Did they just see a mound? So for that, we give you up to 60 years. Beyond that, we're concerned that uh, your memory is off. But when, it, when you're testifying about something that you knew at the time you were supposed to testify about it, you were asked and called upon to be a witness for the future, so then it could be even beyond 60 years. Then even beyond 60 years, a person's constantly thinking about it. They're constantly remembering it. And so therefore they could testify even if it's beyond 60 years. And that's the conclusion of the Gemara. Even according to Remeir, certainly according to Rebuda, but even according to Remeir, they could testify if it's beyond, even if it's beyond 60 years because they were assigned as a witness at the, uh, you know, way, way before. And so therefore they could testify beyond 60 years. Okay. We're up to the next Mishnah. I want to discuss the new Mishnah in Next week's recording.